so grateful. Thank you, Mr. Neuenberg and Mr. Headley for opening God's word to us. And I'll just say, I think we have the power group right down here on the front row. And so to a couple of you, let me see, Tyler and Nathan and Devin and Luke and Riley down here. I have a task for you. You see these two people on, on the row with you. You have to make sure that Pastor Perry and Mr. Headley listen to the sermon. When they pull out their phones or something, you have to say, what? This is God's word. You've got to listen to this. So we'll, we'll see. It'll be a tough job just to let you know. I wonder if any of you ever have watched those uh, television programs where they're divided into two parts. So the first part ends and then the second week comes back. And on the second week, you, you always have to have an announcer begin it. Usually the announcer has to have, from our church, Phil Crowley. Do you know Phil? One of those great voices that says something like, in last week's episode. And then they'll fill you in on what happened last week because maybe there were some people who weren't there last week or didn't see it. And mostly people are forgetful and don't remember. And so what you have to do is be brought back up to speed so you can figure out what's going to happen in this week's episode. So that's what I thought to, with that in mind. Uh, I thought I should bring my, begin my sermon this week. In last week's message, what, what we were talking about, and especially for those of you who are at the high school or, or children's programs, what we were talking about is that God made each one of us. He loves each one of us. Um, and he made a way for us to, to live well. Uh, Jesus would call it the abundant life. God, God didn't create us in his image to live poorly. He made us to live well, but things have gone wrong in our world. And, and so most people, we all know this. We have days when we, things aren't going well, right? And so Jesus came to be able to reintroduce us to the life that God created us to have. And I, I began pointing out last week that just big, big things uh, from the Gospel of Mark about the foundations of us living life as God made us to live. And some of you may remember three main points. Number one, the way we look at the world when we follow Jesus is that we think God is here and at work. That there is a plan that God is working out in this world and we're involved in it and it's eventually going to be wonderful. God is working out a plan. We believe that. That there is a way God created life to be lived. Amen? Anybody agree? Number two, our issue then, I mean, if we're going to live well, is finding our place in God's plan. We've got to figure out why he made us and what he would have us to do. And then point three, and this didn't surprise anybody, is the claim of the entire New Testament is that Jesus is the key to us finding our place in what God is doing. Now, last week, I also pointed out that when I make these big, broad statements like that, always difficult, practical questions are asked. And some of those came out from my own son, this banjo player who was up here, who was asked by Jeremy, do you play the banjo? And he said, well, of course. And he had never played one. But anyway, he was up here doing it just to let you know. Um, he wrote me an email about this and he said, well, how does Jesus introduce people to their places in God's plan? That always seems to be the missing piece for folks like me in sermons like I, I preach. Anyway, the most difficult issue, Brandon wrote, for a 20-something like myself 
is how in the world we are introduced to that plan. Did any of you wonder about that yourself when I talked about that? If not, well, I'm going to talk about it anyway. I want you to know that the questions that Brandon and many people ask about how do we find our place in God's plan, the question is much clearer than my answer is going to be. Just nail that down. Because actually the entire Bible is talking about that. About the world we're in, what went wrong, what God is doing to make things right, and how we can find our place. So the Bible just doesn't say, okay, if you really want to live well, I'll give you five things. One, two, three, four, five. Check, 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 check. Boom. Out comes perfect life. Instead, you know what it does? It takes people just like you and me. And it shows us when Jesus breaks into their lives, how their lives change. And we learn to follow as people follow. It's not as slick or as neat. But today we're going to come to one of the texts that gives us the beginning of it, at least, because it's the first place where Jesus actually breaks into the lives of two, two sets of brothers. He calls them to himself and they begin to learn to find their place in God's plan. It, it all starts with him making a general call. This is what anybody who will follow me must do. And then he brings it right down to specific people. This is what it looks like. So that's what I want to think about for just a few moments today. And then I'm going to end with a children's story. Okay? So number one, the questions that I ask. First question that I ask about this is, what is it that Jesus calls everybody to do? All right, if you come to church today, regardless of age, back, Jesus said, I've made you, I love you, I know you. <clears throat> what is it that he calls every one of us to do? And there are two words. He calls us to repent and believe. He calls us to repent and believe. This is in verses 14 and 15. What we have in verses 14 and 15 of Mark chapter 1 is Jesus has been out in the wilderness. He's been tempted by Satan. He's been facing wild beasts. But he comes out and he announces his mission in life. Listen to what he says. So after John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee and he was proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God, reign of God in this world is near. Here's what you have to do. Repent and believe the good news. Now, one of the things that strikes me when I look at this, Jesus comes out of that isolation and he... Um, announces his mission in the world. But he doesn't do it in the way most people in the world would do it. Uh, I, I've been thinking about the political campaigns that we've been having. When people are going to announce, I'm going to run for president of the United States and make everything perfect in the United States, they, they usually go to some big media center. They might do it in Los Angeles. But Jesus didn't do that. He, he went not into Rome. He didn't go into Jerusalem. He went into this little disrespected place called Galilee where people would say, can anything good come out of there? And that's where he announced it with no media present. It would be like in our world, somebody saying, I'm going to announce I'm going to be president. And they do it from a bowling alley in Bluefield, West Virginia. That's where I'm from, in case you don't know. So the first thing that hits me about this is Jesus just is going to do things different from the way that the world does. But what he announces is powerful. He says that God's good news is about to break into this world and can change your life. Uh, in two weeks ago's sermon, <laughs> I, I pointed out that the good news word that he used 
was the news that a leader, a king would use to say that a big victory is coming. And what, what Jesus is really saying is look around the world and you'll see that even though I made it, there are so many things that are not good. Look at the Middle East right now. Look at what's happening in Israel, Egypt, Tunisia, all over the world. And we say, that's not the way God meant for this world to be. There are just, doesn't it seem like other things are ruling in this world other than God? And he says, God is announcing this, that I'm going to begin something that's going to make everything right. And it all centers on Jesus coming into the world, on the life he lived, which is the way life is supposed to be lived. The death he would die so that we can be forgiven of sins. And the resurrection that shows he has victory over everything. So he says, listen, something new is going to happen that if you're not living life well, I'm going to introduce you to something that will help you to have abundant life, eternal life. And if we think, yes, I would like to find it, he says, this is what you must do. Two words, repent and believe. Everybody who will follow me must repent and believe. But what do they mean? Repent. A a word that means to turn away from. So here's what Jesus is saying. In our lives, naturally, we live for ourselves. We get up in the morning and think, what do I really want to do today? Or sometimes we just try to live the way everybody else in the world lives. Repent means we turn from the way we used to live. It means a turning around of our whole lives, the way we used to think, turning away from that. See, a lot of times in church, when we hear the word repent, we just think it has to do with a few sins in my past. I better not do those anymore. And that's a part of it. But really, it means a whole change of the entire direction of our lives. I used to live the way everybody else in the world lives. I used to live for myself. And now I have to turn away from that. But to what? Believe. What what Jesus is saying is we have to turn to him, believe in him. It's hard for us as Americans to understand what Jesus is getting at. Because when we talk about believe... Don't we usually just think it's something I have in my head that may not change anything about how I live? But in Jesus' day, when you believe something, you live that way. If you don't live according to it, you don't really believe it. So that when Jesus says, believe in me, it means that instead of living for yourself, you've got to believe that I'm the one who made you. I'm the one who loves you. I'm the one who knows how you're supposed to live. Follow me. Trust me. And it's a process. It starts. It starts. When we give our lives to Jesus as our personal Savior. But the very language that Jesus uses, I will make you to become something, is language of process. So in my own experience, I've been a follower of Jesus for a long time. This is almost a daily thing. You know, I naturally wake up in the morning and I think, oh, what do I want to do? But when we follow Jesus, an intentional choice is made to say, my life is yours. I will follow you. I may have told you the story. I used to play tennis with an engineer up in San Luis Obispo. He had come to know Jesus during the time he and I talked. We have a lot of engineers in this church. I always see the big pictures of things. Engineers see every detail, right? To be a good engineer, you have to. So I just, you know, said, just follow Jesus. And he would say, but what does that mean every day of my life? He wanted all the details. I was already at Z. He was just at A.33. Um, finally, one day, we broke at the, at the, in the middle of sets And he said to me, Pastor Greg, all right, I just wonder if I've got this thing right. Um, Before I gave my life to Jesus, I would wake up in the morning and think, "Hmm, what do I want to do today? Who do I want to talk to today? What do I want to eat today? 
Now, every morning when I get up, I think, Lord, my life is yours. Everybody you bring across my path, you brought them there. Everything that happens is part of your work in this world. How would you have me to live today? Do you think I have it right, he would say. I say, live that way and you will see the glory of the Lord. (laughs) See, that is the call of Jesus upon all of us. This intentional choice, really daily choice. I want to live this way, my own self, this way. Everybody else in my class, everybody in the world is living, but I'm going to live for you. Repent and believe. Second question. Um, who is this person who just speaks and expects people to follow him? Isn't that what happens? I mean, these men out there fishing as they do every day. Jesus comes and says, come follow me, and he expects them to follow My basic answer is he's the one who redirects life and transforms life. He is the one and only one who can give us the life we were made to have. Now, I was meeting with a group of people Tuesday talking about this text. Zach Johnson, who's downstairs working with video and audio, and now probably woke up when he heard me use his name. He said this, when I read this thing, the question I have is, why? Why did Jesus just speak and these people follow him? Did he hypnotize them? Had he met them before? Now, um, there is some evidence in the Gospel of John that Jesus had met these disciples before. But in the Gospel of Mark, the main point that it's making is who Jesus is. Something that's happened again and again, that when people see Jesus, hear Jesus, find out how he lives, we see that and we say, there's something good about that. The authority and beauty of Jesus is here. And as I read the text, what I think is there are these four fishermen out there. And even though they had a pretty good life, um, they had a family. They were fishing with them. They had some possessions, a good boat and home, had a good career. Fishing was a good career back in, in Galilee. Still, something was missing. Have you ever sensed that about your own life? That you have a lot of good things, but there has to be something more than I found. That's what I think must have been there. So that when Jesus came, somehow, and this has happened in my own experience too at times, when I read about Jesus, somehow I just know that he is the one who can make a difference. The other things are good, but if I put them at the center of my life, they'll let me down. It's Jesus who can change things. So that when he spoke and they saw him, they had to say, yes, I will follow you. Again, last Tuesday, Pastor Carol Kenyon was saying, you know, to respond to this, it really depends upon the person who's speaking, doesn't it? He said, if it were Jesus, somebody who's just so beautiful and wonderful, we want to say yes. Or if it's somebody we're afraid of, we'll say yes. Uh, So that if we know that there's a judge in a courtroom who's going to determine the next 30 years of our lives by the judgment that the judge makes. And the judge says, come in here now. We'll probably want to go if we have any wisdom at all. So she said it really depends upon the sense of awe and the, the sense of respect we have for the one who calls us. And it was really funny. My assistant Tiffany is sitting right on the front row. At that very moment when Carol said that, Tiffany opened the door and said, Pastor Greg, it's time for your next appointment. And, I, of course, I dropped everything and went. It really was pretty funny, Tiffany, just to, to let you know. So in this, the person who calls, when we take the time to see him, see how he lived, to hear him, we find out that he is the one who is living the life that we long for.
one of the things that's so striking for me when I read this story is that uh, he is always the one who seeks after us. A lot of people will say, well, back in that day when a rabbi wanted followers, he always went and recruited people to follow him. But that's not true. It was always the student who went and looked for the rabbi. But it's not that way with us and God, is it? On our own, most of us just want to live for ourselves, right? But he is always seeking after us. And when we hit those points, when we say there has to be more, we find him always with open arms, ready, ready to receive us. C.S. Lewis would write about that. You know, the, the great Cambridge professor, great scholar of the past generation. In his testimony book, Surprised by Joy, he'd, he'd been an atheist, then an agnostic, always saying about this search for God until he met Jesus. And in his book, he wrote, I'll, I'll give you a few little snippets of it. He said, amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, as I was then, you know, back when he was an agnostic himself, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. It really is the way it is. We we want to live our own lives. We stay away from anybody controlling us. It's not us who go after him. But then Lewis knew something was missing. And when God began to draw him to himself and he saw Jesus as he was, the power and beauty of this Jesus, he looked at himself and he saw how far short he falls from what Jesus is. It's kind of like when Chris and I once went to visit Delft, Holland, you know, where the porcelain is made. Uh, we first went and looked at, at uh, some, some seconds in a shop that were cheap. And then we went to the main shop where they had the first. Do you remember this, Chris? And we looked, so they were beautiful, but they were so ridiculously expensive. We thought the seconds are okay for us. But then after we'd seen the best and we went back and looked at the seconds, they looked so distorted. The same way we look at ourselves, I'm okay. We look at Jesus. He's the blueprint of what we're supposed to be. And we see ourselves and we say there's something not quite right that needs to be changed. That's what Lewis said. He became aware of his own sinfulness when he saw Jesus. He said, when I saw him for the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose. And there I found what appalled me, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears. A harem of fondled hatreds. My name is Legion. Powerful. You see yourself in that? Lewis knew he had to repent. The first word Jesus called. He needed to change his ways. And so he did. He repented and said, I can't live that way anymore. And he believed he turned to Jesus. It was on September 22nd, 1931. When he said yes to Jesus, it happened just such an interesting time. It happened as he was taking a ride to a zoo with his brother Warren, Whipsnade Zoo in England. This is what he wrote. I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. And my own walk with God has been so many times like that. The way he breaks in, I I know something's missing. I know there's something more I should have. I'm just sort of living the way. I showed up at church. I show up at church all the time. Then God breaks in. And I know I must say yes. And it's all because of the power and beauty of his person. Which brings me to the third question. 
when God comes and says, all right, I want you to live in a different way, uh, what does he call people to do? And, and what I want to say about these four people he broke into their lives, they were called to become disciples being made. Because when you first believe, you just get into a process, right? Sent while they were being made to make disciples. Does that make sense to you? They were called by Jesus to become disciples in the making. Sent to make disciples. Even while we're being changed, he uses us. Hallelujah. So what we see are two sets of brothers. The Jonas brothers and the Zebedee brothers. The Jonas brothers, probably not Nick and, uh, and the boy band, right? Do we have a picture of them? I thought we did. Not me, not me. Okay. Instead, uh, it's talking about Simon Peter and Andrew, and the Zebedee brothers were James and John. And what he called them to do, well, I'll just tell you what. When Jesus broke into their lives, they had to step away from their possessions, their careers, and their families. All right. When I talk about this, repeatedly, the question is, Pastor, does everybody have to just leave all of your possessions, your career, and your family? And I'll just tell you, we must be willing to. But make note of a couple of things. These four men who at one moment were to step aside from all these things often went back to them when they were not on the mission with Jesus. Make note of that. Second thing I want you to notice is Jesus did not call everybody he met to do this, to leave possessions, career, and family. And, and said there are sometimes when a person wanted to do that and follow Jesus, and he said, no, my call upon you is to go right back into your family. <laughs> Right back into your place and, and, and represent me there and declare my glory. And the other thing that's really interesting for me in, in Mark's gospel is that sometimes these people who for a while had to leave their possessions and their families sometimes went back and utilized those same possessions for the mission. You with me? So what am I going to say to us about that? I, as Jesus breaks into our lives, there are just a couple of points I'll give you for your consideration. If you can't get them all down... You know that the notes are online, both in English and Chinese, in case you wonder, whichever one you're better in. But let me just say a few things to us as a family. This is for all of us. All Jesus followers are called upon to give Jesus priority over everything in this world. He must be the Lord. He must be more important than career, possessions, and family. For these four men, that meant practically, as long as they were on that journey, they had to leave those things behind to do what Jesus called them to do. But when they weren't on the journey with him, they could go back. But one way or the other, he had to take priority even over wonderful things like career, possessions, and family. You see? Number two, Jesus' call is always a personal call. So if we want to say, okay, pastor, how does Jesus speak to you? I just want you to know that he may speak to you in a different way. I keep a journey in, journal and there's big times when God breaks into my life. And I kind of see I've often called it the fingerprints of God that he works in similar ways in my life. But then I'll talk with others and they'll say, well, he never works that way in mine. It's because even though God is the maker of the universe, he knows each one of us as if we were his only child. 
and, and he deals. It's always consistent with his values and his mission. It, it, it's always consistent with his word, but his call is specific to us. So that he called these four brothers to do things different from what he called others to do. Make note of that. He's a personal God. Number three. The call of Jesus is rarely to some huge self-glorifying task. You're not responding as much to this as I'd hoped that you would. I'll tell you why I put this in. Because Pastor Perry told me I had to. (laughs) Because sometimes when people hear a message like this, they have this quick emotional response. They go home to their parents and say, I'm going to do something big for God. They leave everything behind and then do something dumb that doesn't further God's glory at all because they're really still doing it for themselves. I'm going to do something nobody else does, and it's always I'm. And it's always, they always view it, I'm going to do something huge. I mean, history is filled with people who have read this text and said, I'm going to do something big for God. Like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to start a hip-hop ministry among the retired people in the trailer homes of Florida. probably isn't going to further the gospel very well, do you think? So I'll I'll just tell you this. Uh, When he breaks into our lives, it's always to further his mission. It's always with the heart's desire to glorify God and to honor him. And I have found that usually it begins with a number of small steps of obedience. Remember when Jesus would say, when we learn to be faithful in small things, then he can entrust us with bigger ones. So it's rarely the call, at first especially, to some self-glorifying big task. Number four, when Jesus calls you, and this I wanted to make this point this morning, he calls us to a Jesus-centered community, the church. He did with these four men, did you notice? He, he, he brought them into a community with him and with one another and eventually with a group of others. He always has. He still does. He always will. So what happens is within that community of, of people like this, we, we have to worship together and we, we learn from one another. We look at God together. We read scripture together. It's always into a community. So you need to make, and I pray it's this one, uh, the community where we worship together a part of your life and, and a smaller group from within this community where you can actually pray with one another and confront one another a part of your life. Jesus' call is always a call to community with him at the center. Where sometimes they failed together. <laughs> but then he could talk with them together too and, and they could get back on track with one another. We'll see that all through this, through this fall. And then number five. Now I'm going to go to Medlin. The call of Jesus is always a call to serve. Come follow me so that you can become fishers of men. Uh, it's, it's not just a call to somehow, it, it is always a call to serve, to further his work in the world. Fishers of men, it's really confused people because any of you do any fishing? You know, the way we fish, usually you take live things and pull it out and they die and we eat it. So it doesn't seem to be a great metaphor, does it? <laughs> I'll make you fish. No, but you've got to see, you've got to put it into the context. In the ancient world, Mediterranean world, where Jesus lived, people were afraid of the ocean and of the sea. It was a place where they couldn't control it. It was a place of fear and of judgment. And he says, that's what I'm going to pull you. I'll use you. I'll pull you out and give you a life. But I'm going to use you so that you can carry my message to others. 
so that God, when he takes us, always calls us to service. Um, and I think it should start in us serving one another according to the gifts God's given us. And when we leave this place, it means we look to serve those God brings across our paths. Those of you who have been here my whole five years, you know, I did the, the series of sermons on divine appointments. Any of you remember that? That we need to go out with these attitudes. I'm gonna, I want to serve God. I want to represent him. And then viewing that there are people that God will bring across our paths, put us next to them in the school, where, whatever he does. And sometimes they're irritating people. And we look at that. Every one of those is a divine appointment. And every appointment is an opportunity. To serve and to be fishers of people. To show them the love of Jesus. And call them to believe and follow Jesus. All right, my time is gone. So my my big question, if I put this all together, I'll say, we are all called by Jesus to become his disciples. Being made. Sent to make disciples. So where do we start if we're going to know how to find our place in God's plan? And I've just kind of boiled it down to this phrase. The call of Jesus is always to follow him. Always in community. It is always to serve. Always to follow him. All right. Do all of us have hearts open? To say, I'm not quite sure what you'd have, but would you have me to do? But Lord Jesus, my life is yours. Remember, Paul said... Now that I know him, I can't live any longer for myself. I must live for him who died. You have that heart to say, Lord, anywhere, anything. It starts there. Yes, he may use your education. He may use your gifts. He may use your passions. But the first thing is that you are ready to be used by him. Always ready to follow. Always in community. So I, I just urge us, we need, to, we need to worship together. And, you know, it's hard for us. We'd rather just sing the style of music we like. And all, but we're a family of people who have been rescued by him. And we've got, to, we've got to worship together and together hear God's voice and then find a smaller group within the larger body where we can pray for one another and help one another and hold one another accountable and fail together and succeed, all those things. It's always in community. And it's always to serve. And that's why we have this connect piece, so that you can find a community, a smaller community within our larger church, and can find a place to serve in the church and outside of the church to the glory of God. And I'll just tell you, as we learn to follow him and learn within community and learn as we serve, we, God promises us we will find our lives. We will find our lives. I want to end my message. I knew we'd have a lot of our children here. Uh, all through my life, I, I would read stories to my children. To, to Heather, I read until she was 15. I think Brandon until he was 13. Um, and one of my favorite stories was by George MacDonald. He had a, at least 11 children. And so sometimes he would write uh, stories for his children so that they could learn what I'm trying to talk to you about. How do we learn to walk with God? Uh, George MacDonald was writing in the 19th century. He was a congregational church pastor. Did you know that? Congregational church pastor who was very, very popular. Um, and one of the stories I love the most was written specifically for this topic today. Learning how to walk with God when we don't see him. 
find our place in his plan. The story is called The Princess and the Goblins. So we have some illustrations, and I'll read. So sit back, family. And just as George MacDonald prayed that God would use this to teach his children how to trust God and walk with him, I pray that he might use it in our lives as well. Princess and the Goblin by George MacDonald. There was once a little princess whose father was king over a great country full of mountains and valleys. His palace was built upon one of the mountains and was very grand and beautiful. The princess's name was Irene. Because her mother was not very strong, Irene was sent soon after her birth to be brought up in a large house, half castle, half farmhouse, but on another mountain. Eight-year-old princess Irene lived a lonely life in a wild, desolate, mountainous kingdom with only her nursemaid, Luti, for company. Irene had never known about the existence of the goblins, creatures that lurk in the underground mines. These goblins were grotesque and hideous beings who centuries ago were once human. They despised the humans above the ground and vowed revenge upon them. Irene and Luti, Luti who knew of the goblins, stayed out late one night and were chased by the goblins who only appear on the surface at night because sunshine repulsed them. One day, Luti and Irene barely escaped the goblins after a miner's child, a boy named Curtie Peterson, appeared and sang loudly to the goblins, which drove them away. Curtie proudly stated that goblins are repelled by his singing. And he and Irene became friends. However, Curtie soon discovered, after he ventured into the mines and actually entered into the realm of the goblins, that the goblins were planning a war against the humans on the surface where they plotted to abduct Princess Irene and to marry her to the awful Prince Froglip. Sadly, while there, Curtie was trapped in the underground mines of the goblins. Meanwhile, lonely Irene one day ascended a staircase to the top of the house. There she discovered her fairy grandmother in an upper room of the big house. Irene came to love her grandmother, who taught her much about the world and about life. But her grandmother was not always present, not always to be found, and the goblins were becoming much more present all around the house. So, one day, Irene's grandmother gave Irene a ring with a thread attached to the ring on one side and to a ball of thread on the other. And the grandmother told her, Irene, keep this ring with the thread and I will keep the ball of thread. Irene could not see the thread on the ring, but she could feel it. So her grandmother said, when you feel you are in danger, you must take the, the ring off your finger Put it on your pillow, feel for the thread, and follow it wherever it leads you. How delightful, said Irene. I know it will lead me to you, grandmother. It will, she was told. 
but it may be in a very roundabout way. But never doubt the thread or where it takes you. Just remember, while you hold one end, I hold the other. Sometime later, Irina's in bed when the goblins enter the house. She hears them snarling in the hallway. But in spite of her fear, she remembers. She remembers to take off the ring and put it on her pillow. She feels for the thread. She finds it and begins to follow it. But she is shocked to find that that it does not lead her to the top of the house and her grandmother, but out into the wild where the goblins roam. As Irene continues to follow the thread, she discovers it is taking her directly to the cave of the goblins. Still, Irene follows. She walks into the cave until it leads her to a wall of rocks. This is a dead end, she thought in confusion. But I can follow the thread backward so that I may get out of this cave. But as soon as she turned, the thread vanished. Grandmother's thread seemed only to work forward. But forward led through a a heap of rocks. Feeling helpless and betrayed, she wanted to quit. She fell down crying. But then she decided she had to trust her grandmother and follow the thread. She knew that the only way to do that was to pull down the rocks. So she worked. Her fingers bled, but she did not give up. And eventually, she heard a voice. Then she saw a face. It was her friend, Curdie, who had been trapped in the goblin's cave. Astounded, Curdie asked, How did you find me here? And Irene said, My grandmother sent me. I had no idea you were trapped. Good, said Curdie. Let's get out of here. But Irene's thread led down into the depths of the goblin's cave. And she said, I'm sorry, but I must follow the thread. And Curdie said, that's not the way out. I've tried that. I've been there. Yet Irene said, that is where my thread goes. And I have learned that I must follow the thread wherever it leads. So through seemingly treacherous paths, they walked, following Irene's confident steps as she followed the thread. And at last, they spied a glimmer of light. And soon the princess discovered that they stood in her own garden. She danced. She clapped her hands with delight. And when they got inside the the house, Irene found that the thread, as she had half expected that it would, led up the staircase. She turned to Curdie and said, My grandmother wants me. Do come up so that you can meet her too. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that through faith in Jesus, the gift of his Holy Spirit to prompt us, the community of faith to walk with, that there is a thread that God has for each of our lives that we can discern if we will but trust him 
and follow. And I am convinced that when we do, we will find our lives. To his glory. Amen.